everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for episode six of season five of the Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication studies, also at the University of Alabama, and we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. So our guest today studies a lot of very interesting people and areas, and largely the population she studies is within higher education. And one aside here, I think one of the fun things, well, it's all fun, but one of the fun things <laughs> things that I think happens in this podcast is I get to learn something new about people that I like walk by in the hall every day. So for example, our guest today doesn't wear a t-shirt that says I worked in higher education with students before I was a professor. And if we hadn't done the podcast, I wouldn't have known that. Right. <laughs> so I gave that a little away. Um, work with students. <laughs> She taught students. Um, and one of the things that she, our guest today did was she helped students navigate higher education so that they could be successful. So with that, I have to ask, what is your number one tip or strategy for success in higher education? I love this question. And I have many answers, but I'm going to try to keep this brief because it's just the intro. <laughs> um, I think number one, ask questions or maybe don't be afraid to ask questions. I think sometimes when you're a student or even a faculty member, um, you don't know what you don't know if you're getting into something that's brand new. But I think there's also kind of this built in layer of apprehension. Well, if I ask a question, maybe they're going to think I'm not very smart. And that can happen at so many levels. And it's hard to push through that. But I think my strategy or tip would be, if you have a question, ask a question and just find like a nice human being, somebody with a smile, somebody with a friendly face, and try that person first. And with all of that, we would like to formally introduce our guest today, Dr. Mary Mears, who studies intercultural communication. And she currently is an associate professor of communication studies at the University of Alabama. We'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Mary Mears. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. We are thrilled to have you. I'm delighted to be here. All right, so we're going to start off. We have two rapid fire sections in this podcast, and we're going to start off with our first section. If you could tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do now. Well, um, my name is Mary Mears. I'm an associate professor at the University of Alabama in the Department of Communication Studies. Um, I grew up in the Southeast in, in North Carolina and got really interested in, from an early age, in the effects of culture um, defined broadly. It could be race, class, gender, um, nationality. Um, and I've had a chance to live a lot of different places, um, but I've been here in Alabama in the last 15 years um, and teaching intercultural communication and research methods courses here at the university. I love that summary answer. That's fantastic. <laughs> As a young child, um, did you always want to be a professor? What did you see yourself do? And I, I was interested in school. I remember playing school as a kid, but not, I don't think I had any idea of what a professor was at that point in time. <laughs> 
And I was pretty shy as a kid. I was um, never somebody that I thought would be able to get up and stand in front of a classroom of people and talk with confidence. But as I've developed my um, interest in culture, it became really easy to do that. Mm. So Mary, you mentioned that you've kind of lived all over the place, and I definitely want to know what your favorite was. But in doing so, can you tell us a little bit about the path that you were on to get us to what you're to what you're doing now? Well, frankly, I had a somewhat unconventional path as an academic. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was in college, and so I stuck around for a graduate degree in student development and higher education because I was working on campus. Hmm. And um, I was, you know, uh, having a great time helping students uh, adjust to college. Uh, but my most interesting um, experience during that time was working in the International Residence Hall. I had always been interested in people from different places. Um, my dad was a doctor during the Vietnam War. So um, from a very early age, I was aware that sometimes culture caused conflict and that um, people lived and, and did things differently in different places. Um, I had a chance to work with a study abroad program called Semester at Sea and working with mostly American students traveling. And when I came back from that, I spent six years as a counselor at a community college, again, working primarily with international students and helping them to adjust. We had lots of immigrants and refugees um, and kind of coming from all different countries and different walks of life. And that really um, intensified my interest in, in culture. I felt like if I was going to continue doing that kind of work, and I, I, again, I didn't think I was going to be a professor at that point. I thought I was going to be a student services kind of person. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I needed to have some international experience myself. I'd traveled a lot, but I'd never lived someplace else. Mm -hmm. So I moved to Japan for three and a half years at that point, worked at a Japanese university. And during that time, I really realized how much I love teaching. Mm -hmm. so when I, yeah. So I came back in my thirties, I um, applied for PhD programs and started my real path, uh, direct path to being a professor. But all of those things that I did before really contribute um, to the work that I do in the classroom and the work that I do in terms of research as well. Okay, so let's go there. Um, <laughs> give us an, an elevator pitch of, of what studying culture is. Well, we all grew up learning uh, different things, different ways of being, but also what the world is and how we should behave in the world. And whether it's in our neighborhoods or our schools, or our universities, or our workplaces, we're always interacting with people who've been brought up differently from us. So intercultural communication is looking at what happens when people from those different backgrounds are interacting. And unfortunately, a lot of times we focus on what doesn't work Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because culture can cause a lot of conflicts, whether it's a war or a workplace conflict or um, just someone um, having a problem with someone in their extended family, even potentially. Mm. So I'm really interested in how people learn to be curious about other cultures and how they um, develop their sense of other people's lives as being as complex as their own lives. Okay, this is fascinating to me. So you're going to have a series of follow-up questions from both of us. <laughs> Great. Just going to give you that heads up. Um, 
So can you tell us about one of your studies specifically, maybe where um, you found something that you didn't expect to find or something that was just kind of reaffirming in terms of all of your experiences and what you had been doing in your research? Sure. Um, let me give you two examples. Um, one, is an ex- one is an example that I worked on with, with graduate students. Um, they were taking a qualitative research class and uh, a couple of the students were international students and they were really interested in how people develop friends from another culture, especially good friends or best friends from another culture. So I worked with the students. Um, they interviewed uh, people who identified, self-identified as having friends who were um, close friends from another culture. And in this case, we define culture as country. Um, Mm. There are a lot of reasons not just to look at country, but in this case, we were looking at those kinds of international differences. And in some ways, what we found was not surprising at all, just like with uh, same culture or similar culture friendships, we found that people um, are both um, attracted to difference and reassured by similarity. Now, of course, with an international friendship, the, the differences are more extreme, um, and yet they had to have something in common as well that helped them connect as friends and gave them something to share. And kind of building on those similarities but being interested by those differences was what really maintained those friendships. I'm, I'm in the middle of a study right now um, where we're looking at faculty members um, and faculty members who have um, their own experiences with diversity, both personally, but we're focusing especially in the campus and in the classroom, and how they work with students around issues of difference. Now, people are volunteering to participate in these, so most of the people are pretty sophisticated in some ways, maybe sophisticated is the wrong word, but they've thought about diversity before Mm -hmm. um, in the context of their teaching. Some of them teach things that are directly related to diversity in one way or another. Others don't. Um, But trying to see the ways in which they're trying to help their students figure out and navigate and develop skills to have conversations about diversity And yet, at the same time, they're struggling themselves with the current political context, being Mm -hmm. afraid of um, not wanting to say the wrong thing, I think Mm -hmm. is a good way to put it. So does your your research always kind of stem from, or the the research question maybe, um, does it stem from your experiences kind of just navigating the world and kind of being being uh, observant about who you're interacting with and what you're seeing? I I think so. Um, And I think because I see so much of the world through the lens of culture that it's impossible for me to not see it through the lens of culture. So for example, um, I'm working on um, a project with a graduate student. It was her dissertation and now she's graduated and we're working on it for publication. Um, And it's a very different kind of project in some ways. She has a scientific background and is very interested in um, how people stay safe on, on, in their labs on campus. Um, And so we were looking at the, or she was really uh, initiating this, looking at the experience of 
people who don't have tenure yet in the scientific professions, but their tenure prospects depend on their productivity of their lab. And these are labs where people are doing um, experiments where there's the potential for danger. Mm -hmm. Um, So to a certain extent, that doesn't really involve culture, Mm -hmm. but it involves the culture of the different disciplines and the culture of the university. And so it's impossible for me to look at that and not see kind of how the culture of the natural sciences encourages people to be socialized, to do research in a particular way, and how they struggle sometimes with the rules and regulations that are part of the culture of the university. Everybody wants to keep people safe, but there are different kinds of priorities and expectations. Um, So even though that's not technically an intercultural project, I can't help but see it through the lens of culture. Uh, you, so you you've got like a dummy <laughs> here because I always thought <laughs> in research methods like now you're a researcher and you are going to see the world through a research lens and you're always now going to be asking like where's the research question here where's the research <laughs> and and you're you've got that part and seeing everything through this cultural lens which is very cool. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, again, it's it's the it's the eyeglasses that I'm wearing when I see the world. I I can't see it any other way. (laughs) So, Mary, I want to follow up on something that you said, that people are attracted by difference, but reassured by similarity. And I feel like in so many contexts, that's exactly the case. You know, when you think about traveling to another country You're excited and it seems adventurous, but sometimes for some people, it's pushed them kind of a little far outside of their comfort box and they want to see something familiar or something that's relatable. So through the research that you've done and through your own personal experiences, how how do people work through all of that when there's difference and you want to like challenge yourself but you're also kind of scared or apprehensive does that make sense yeah I think it's always the balance between uh, challenge and support Um, in fact a lot of educational psychology researchers talk about this and there are a lot of uh, folks who've looked at how um, from a psychological perspective we move um, and and progress in terms of openness to outsider perspectives Um, You know, if we're talking about this from a facilitator or instructor perspective, one of the things I'm always really careful to do is to balance challenge and support. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to push someone off the deep end too early on or they're going to freeze and they're going to potentially fossilize at a point where they don't want to be around anybody who's different from them. Um, In terms of our own development, you know, you have to think about where do you feel safe, but where do you feel too safe? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and make sure you're not just staying in the safe zone because it's safe, because we can't really learn there. Um, when I think about things like how I structure my classes or even structuring study abroad experiences I've worked with students on, um, I, again, I want to give them enough preparation that they're not too overwhelmed at the beginning, but also give them a space to process if they are feeling overwhelmed. Um, and be careful of people's um, consciousness, you know, fright or flight, right? You don't want Mm -hmm. people to be so 
um, scared by a situation that they're not going to be able to process it, not going to be able to move forward. And frankly, think I think a lot about how to generate curiosity in people, because if they're curious, um, which is often attributed as one of the, the basics of intercultural competence, um, then they're going to be more open to that difference. I'm furiously trying to write all of this down. <laughs> I mean, and it makes perfect sense. Um when you say it out loud, then I'm not sure if I've ever thought about it in quite that way. It's, it's really fascinating. So can you tell us about kind of where the research takes you as you move forward? Well, I, I think earlier on, I was more interested in what happened when people were interacting. And it, recently, in the last probably decade, but especially in the last few years, I've gotten much more interested in the ways we can intervene in that process. Mm. So this question, the, the study that I'm doing right now, um, an interdisciplinary study, by the way, I'm working with faculty in, in American studies and anthropology um, and global studies. What can we do as instructors or can we provide for other instructors to help us do a better job of helping students be able to navigate the diverse world that we have? Um, so I'm really interested in this question of, you know, across the disciplines, how can we um, set students up for the kind of world they're going to be living in? Mm. How can we, instead of encouraging them to um, avoid difficult conversations, how can we give them the tools and the competence, really, to begin to engage in, in those difficult conversations? Because when they graduate, they're going to be working in a diverse workforce, um, they're mm-hmm. likely likely going to be living in diverse neighborhoods. Um, and the better we can help them be prepared not to never make mistakes, right? Because we're always going to be making mistakes when we're interacting with people who've been brought up differently from us. But how can they learn to be conscious? Um, how can they learn to be um, open and sensitive and curious? And how can they learn to develop relationships with people where they can work through those differences? Okay, so I have a I have a follow up here. So you mo- most of your work um, has been with college students or adults. Is that right? Yes. So okay, so at what point do you think that that maybe some of this opportunity to learn or opportunity to generate curiosity? When should that happen? I mean, is it is it, do we need to wait until students get to college? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I, I, if I was in charge of the world, um, right? Which, thank goodness, I'm not. But um, <laughs> I would I would say this has to happen, or should happen, or would be great if it happens from birth, right? Mm-hmm. If if you're brought up in a context where you're around people who are very similar to you. Um, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to develop that curiosity about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're brought up with books that only represent um, people like you in terms of, of race or class or gender, um, you're not going to be able to have that opportunity to think about other people. And there's so many good these days um, for families, for kids, um, in terms of the diversity in uh, children's literature, 
um, in terms of opportunities to learn about other cultures. Um, again, whether we're talking about people in other countries, but especially people of different races, um, especially people of different socioeconomic statuses. So um, I, I think there's so much here that can help parents to help their children to be curious so that when they get to college or when they get to the workplace, they have a healthy attitude towards people who are different from them. It doesn't mean you have to adopt everybody else's religion or adopt everybody else's ways of doing things, but can you be respectful of other people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like, if, if you don't have those opportunities growing up, is, are you, are, is it too far gone by the time you get to college? No, not at all. Um, and, and I think it's hard these days for anybody to have none of those influences. Yeah. Right. We can mm-hmm. even look at popular culture and, and media and um, the ways that people are exposed to many more um, examples in terms of mass com of, of diversity. But again, I think the thing is, is that balance between um, challenge and support. Mm-hmm. So if I've, grown up in a fairly sheltered kind of context and I've never really had much chance to interact with people who are different from me and I get to college and all of a sudden mm-hmm. I've got a roommate who's different from me and I'm in classes where people are um, uh, encouraging me to to um, explore ideas that are new to me I, I may shut down I may feel overwhelmed with that um, so I think especially when we're working with students who are or people who are for their first time in a new context um, you know, we have to be careful. We don't want to give people a pass if they're doing things that are offensive, for example, but Mm -hmm. we have to look for learning opportunities that can help them develop the capacity to interact with people who are different from themselves. Oh, Mary, you've just given me a whole new idea for a spinoff of this podcast, Afternoon Conversations with Dr. Mary Mears. (laughs) Literally, we could, good grief, we could talk with you every single week. This is... Amazing. I'll bring the coffee. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. But we are at the part of the podcast. We're going to go to rapid fire part two. So what we're going to do is make sure we end this with some recommendations from you. So what's your favorite TV show or what are you watching right now? I don't really watch TV very much, um, but I do stream uh, shows I, I look for things that are representing experiences different from mine. Um, I'm often not up to date with, with um, what's going on on TV. Sorry, I'm not being very rapid fire here. Um, <laughs> but recently I watched um, an Amazon, uh, I think it was a six-part series, um, Jack Ryan, which is a spy Yes. yes. the interesting thing about it is the, the terrorist, the bad guy, we get to see his life as well and mm-hmm. why he turned out the way that he did. So even though it's a, you know, white male protagonist and you know, fitting in a lot of the kind of traditional uh, molds, although he is a PhD academic, um, we get to see why um, people's lives are so different and what made the terrorist turn into a terrorist. Mm-hmm. All right. What's, what book is uh, on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? Um, I'm in a book club um, that does um, diversity in reading, uh, diversity in, in um, uh, backgrounds of the authors. Mm. And I'm, um, oh. I'm blanking on the title right now, but I'm, I just started a book by Leslie Marmon Silco, who is Native American. And um, I am looking forward to getting further into that. I haven't had a chance with the beginning of the semester, but um, 
I don't always keep up. I don't always get to read through all the books, but it gives me a set of books that are from authors that I might not have been exposed to otherwise. Mm. The other, the other book I'm reading right now actually is a cookbook, but it's got a lot of culture in it as well. Um, It's from, um, uh, it's called Miss Emily's cookbook. And Miss Emily is um, the matriarch of an island called Edisto Island, where my ancestors lived. Um, And um, Miss Emily is black and my ancestors were white, but we are cousins. Um, wow. Her ancestors were in, people who were enslaved by my ancestors. Wow. And um, there's a lot of lot to delve into there more than we can today. Um, but uh, kind of looking at the culture and the traditions of the African-American community um, and the um, how that intersects with my own family history. Oh, that's that's it, amazing. If your life were a reality show like you're an amazing answer right now um around the world in 80 days Ooh, <laughs> oh perfect <laughs> um not the book because there, there's definitely some some issues there um but i just watched so another thing i just watched um the david Tennant um version uh bbc version of around the world in 80 days um it's interesting because um he loves adventure and he he well he doesn't love adventure at the beginning and at the beginning he is very much a kind of stay at home um person never does anything different but then he um takes a dare and ends up going around the world and in this recent version um his companions one is a a young woman uh, journalist um and the other is a black man from france and so it really um delves into their friendship as well but kind of what do you do when you end up at a new place and how do you begin to develop some cultural humility recognized people that's cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Any movies <laughs> see right now? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. Any movies that we need to watch? Gosh, you know, since the pandemic, I haven't really had a chance to see many movies in the theater, and I haven't really watched any movies recently, but um, I think there are a lot of great things out there. I guess I would say I just look for things that are giving different perspectives and different points of view. Mm-hmm. Mary, this conversation has been fascinating, and it has been so wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you for giving us some of your time and telling us more about who you are and this amazing work that you do. Thank you both. Absolutely. Bye. Take care.